working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta, and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm talking with John Bryant, a Dallas-based drummer, percussionist, composer, producer, and professor. John's four-decade career includes touring and recording with Ray Charles, Delbert McClinton, Joe Walsh, and many others. As a founding member of the percussion group Didrum, he has partnered with Stuart Copeland to compose and perform a three-movement original concerto, which they premiered with the Dallas Symphony, and produce a documentary film about the music and the process entitled Dare to Drum. John also teaches drum set and music production at Southern Methodist University. If you want to support what we do here at Working Drummer, it's easy. Just go to workingdrummer.net, and along the right side of the homepage, you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon. Every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can also contact us through that website or through Facebook and Instagram. And please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, and leave us a rating and review on any or all of those platforms. Right now, let's check in with our buddy Arjuna Contreras and see what he's up to out there in the world. And the road continues. The tour continues, man. We still got about 10, I think, 10 more shows to go. Okay. Um, out of the 34 <laughs> that this run is. Um, so we're actually, we're in San Jose, California today. And uh have a show tonight at the place called, a place called The Ritz, which is kind of a cool, like, rock venue. And, uh... We are until the 23rd, so we still have, like, what, what, I don't even know what day it is today. (laughs) (laughs) February 13th. (laughs) Okay, so we have, like, a 10 or, yeah, we have 10 days left. Okay, so we're on the, we're on the home stretch. Gotcha. How you feeling? And, um, uh, tired, (laughs) tired, it would be. Uh, pretty obvious, I guess, at this point. <laughs> but, sure. uh, but no, I feel good. Yeah, I feel good though. I've been, you know, working hard on stuff and and uh, you know trying to uh, keep my progress going, like on my health side, um, you know, health side of things. And you know, I haven't. I I, I know I reported uh, quite a dramatic uh, weight loss the last time we talked. A couple more pounds have come off from there, but like okay. it hasn't been as dramatic as that. It's been a little slower going. Sure, as 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 I think it, it always is. It kind of like you know you have your you know that's not a straight line, right. sadly. So uh, man, one of the things I'm really I got these um, practice pads like for you know t- um, for 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 bass drum, like for for my pedals, you know. So I've been really working on my. Um, um, double kick playing like in the afternoon a little bit at the venue and then um, you know it's kind of like an extended warm up before the show um, I'm kind of one I don't know if I mentioned that last time that I'm trying to really improve my double kick playing because I'm not really a double bass drum player well that's an important that's an important point just beyond the double kick playing itself but I mean how we stay in shape on our instrument when we're on tour and you're doing uh, some tours, you're an opening act, you get 20 minutes. Um, sometimes, even if you're the headliner, it's an hour to an hour and a half, often. And um, I think that's my biggest frustration about touring is not being able to spend quality time 
working out stuff and playing. So it sounds like you're making yeah. some oh, yeah, room for, sure. for that. Yeah, yeah. The cool thing about these is that it's really just like uh, electronic. It's kind of like, you know, those old, um, those old, um, you know, the older, uh, like, kick drum triggers for, like, older electronic drum sets. Yeah, the rolling, you know, like, they, the uh, little pads. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like those and you, but it's just got these like foam inserts and, uh, you know, you clip your, you know, you hook your bass drum pedals onto it. So I actually, I got two of them and, you know, I have two single pedals, Okay. you know, like, uh, it's kind of hard to visualize. It's a product that a company called ProLogic's percussion just came out with not too long ago. So, you know, it's something that I've been trying to, trying to work on. It was like one of my goals. I don't know if I had mentioned it last time we talked, no, in addition no. to trying to just get, in addition to just trying to get healthier, like that was one of the room, uh, one of the you know areas of improvement that I really want to try to work on. Oh, as far as playing the double kick. Thing. Yeah. As far gotcha. As Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and I know mentioned we we talked about this on the road, just trying to 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 look at the new year and make some changes about your health and stuff like that. You mentioned mm-hmm. that you've continued that it's maybe plateaued a little bit, and I'm I'm just guessing that mm-hmm. the work that you do now, the work that you can get done while you're traveling and while you're restricted, is got to be it's got to be a challenge. But if you can. You know, if you can work on that now, imagine the free time that you'll have to be able to, how effective it will be when you're home and you have more free time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm thinking too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to being home. Like we're, we're off for the entire month of March. Oh, nice. Um, any, you know, any so, specific yeah, plans, so. any specific plans for yeah, March? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, well, I, I say we're off from March. I actually, I think I mentioned, did I mention that I, um, based on the work I did with Junior Brown during our tour last in, in December, like, uh, that's right. Like yeah. where I filled in, like, yeah, so you're going to pick up I don't there. know if I mentioned that. Yeah. I, so he, he hired me to do a weekend run of California with him, uh, like a four show run on the week right after we finished this tour. So, so we, we, you know, like I was saying, we finished on the 23rd and then I'm actually going to be in Dallas for like three days. Um, just kind of hanging out before flying out to meet up with junior Brown's, uh, camp out in California. And we're doing like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, out in uh, Southern California. Wow. And, um, yeah, from there, I'm actually on Monday, March fourth. I'm gonna. I'm actually flying direct from 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 California back to Nashville, and I'm playing on Loud Jams that night um, on the fourth. Oh, nice. So yeah, so that's like one thing I got going. Like in back in Nashville for March, um, you know, uh, there's some uh, there's a recording project that the, that the Rev is working on that he wants me to cut some tracks for. Um, back in Dallas. So I'll be doing that at some point back in March. And then we're going to be doing some, um, some rehearsal at the end of March, uh, for in preparation for, uh, the April tour. We have a, a new, a new guest, uh, coming out with us Sweet. on that tour. So, well, let me ask you, let me ask you one question, RJ. What, what day of the week is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
I'm going to say, well, I know that yesterday was our first show of the week, which means that yesterday was Tuesday. So I'm going to go with what, well, I'm going to go with what is Wednesday. What is Wednesday? Jeopardy. You are correct. <laughs> you are correct, sir. And how you got to that answer was very telling. Um, and <laughs> I, I like the way you showed your work. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the process of elimination. Well, now the date, though, like when I asked you earlier, like the date, like that, I was, I actually had no clue. Like, I normally don't know the date. It's, it's, they're just points of interest. Uh, but that sounds like you've got things coming up progressively. And, um, so that we'll, we'll check in in a couple weeks to see how that all, all is coming along. And, um, and looking forward to March in anticipation of how you'll spend that aside from the the run that you'll have with Junior Brown, and um, and just yeah. check in, see how you're how you're feeling, and um, how all that all's that, how that all that is going. Yeah, sounds great, man. Cool, good to hear from you. Um, get some rest, have a great show, and we'll, we'll we'll chat again soon. Sounds good, Matt. Thanks, brother. Okay, see you, man. Bye. All right. Bye bye. So there was a lot to dig into here with John, and he had wise and constructive things to say about all of it. So I hope you dig this talk with John Bryan. Dallas is a funny place in a way because, you know, it's not a music town like Nashville mm-hmm. or L.A. or uh, New York, Chicago, or, or even Atlanta for that matter, because Atlanta really has a lot of, uh, you know, product coming out, a lot of rap and hip hop and yeah. that sort of thing that it's known for. And, of course, you know, Nashville and L.A. and New York and Chicago, they're known music centers that produce a lot of product. And Dallas is not really a music-centered uh, town mm-hmm. in that there's not an industry here. There are no real labels or publishing houses or, or managers or any of that to speak of. You know, you, you can't go into a bank in Dallas and get a loan for an album project like <laughs> you can maybe in Nashville or L.A., depending on what's behind you. Right. Um, but what Dallas does have is a great economy and a lot of gigs. Yeah. And, and a working drummer can make a real living in Dallas. Uh, you're not going to get famous out of Dallas. Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to jump on a wagon like you would in, in Austin, you know, uh, which is more of a, of a uh, has a reputation because there are a lot of bands and artists that that play and get started in Austin. Right. And there's a, there's a very real connection between Austin and Nashville. And there are tours that that get together, put together in Austin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can jump on a tour out of Austin, but that doesn't happen in Dallas. But what does happen in Dallas is a lot of work, mm-hmm. meaning you can be uh, a full-time musician and and make a good living and support a family mm-hmm. and do, do just fine here. And the and the way you do that is not by you know like in Nashville getting on a bus and and going out and playing with you know kind of a country music star or getting a session every now and then. Um, uh, although there is you know uh, a pretty good uh, session scene in Dallas, but at one point there was a great recording session scene here. Right, do, right. And primarily jingles and commercials and, uh, and, and corporate stuff. And it's the, it's the strength of the corporate uh, presence here that so much work flows from because you have conventions, you have parties, you have all of the connections that come out of that with weddings and events. And, and uh, you know, um, 
you can make good money as being a working drummer, playing for all of those sort of things. And if you add to that teaching, then and, you know, on top of that, church gigs. Right. There's a ton of churches here. Um, So the trifecta seems to be work a lot of independent gigs. Maybe you're with a band that plays, you know, clubs or and or uh, uh, typically, you know, weddings and events, corporate events, that kind of thing. Um, and then the second branch of that is the teaching, whether it's private or at a, a community college or a major university here, cause there's all a lot of all of that. And then the third piece is having that, uh, steady Sunday morning gig where you're playing at the church and the checks don't bounce. <laughs> right. You know? So Dallas and Dallas is fueled by schools, of course, first foremost is University of North Texas, mm-hmm. you know, that has so many tremendous musicians and such a great reputation and, and history. And it just fuels the uh, musical economy here, you mm-hmm. know, and so many of the, uh, um, and there are great other schools too here, uh, but North Texas stands head and shoulders above all because it's just, you know, certainly one of the best in the nation. Right. This is something we, we like talking about on on the podcast just uh you know the kinds the kinds of gigs that people don't talk about a lot like if you if right. you tell if you tell somebody uh you know what kind of gigs you're doing you'll just kind of gloss over uh, like oh yeah. I do wedding gigs oh I do yeah. corporate gigs and you'll go yeah. more in depth at length uh, right. about right. you know the creative things you do yeah. um but uh you know there there's so many so many drummers everywhere just just making in some cases like long bread <laughs> yeah. with a, yeah. a corporate band or a wedding band yeah um is there a network um or or multiple networks in in dallas like like an east coast music or an emerald empire um these kind of huge stables stables of musicians that have you know 10 or 12 bands out on a given weekend um yeah there are uh, yeah there there are some organizations uh in town booking agents that run you know two to four or five different bands. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, actually a lot more than that, but that have their signature bands that play these events and, uh, uh, and they'll play some clubs every now and then too. And, and, and let me say all of those drummers that are playing those events for the good money on Saturday night mm-hmm. are also very active in the club scene and play. And there are a lot of clubs here. There, are, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not dismissing at all, uh, the ability to grow a unique musical sound here, mm-hmm. uh, because there are a lot of bands that have started here, come from here and then left and find their mark because you're not going to make your mark with a Dallas management record label publishing company right. uh, grouping like you would in L.A. or Nashville. Mm-hmm. So you can put that sound together here uh, and or certainly in Austin, and then you can go out and make a deal right. and you can stay here or you can move. And all of that has happened, too. So and, and, and I do think that the, the musicians that live here always have that in the back of their mind, you know, that, hey, something could strike, something I might get with this group or I might get with that writer, mm-hmm. and we come up with a cool recording that that uh, gets some attention. And um, so that, you know, it, it's kind of like you throw a whole lot of things in the basket. Yeah. And, and the good news is, is you're going to make enough money to make a living at mm-hmm. it. And um, 
of course, the the goal is to not have to work a, a straight day job, you right, know. Right. Uh, uh, and and you can do that in Dallas, um, but the, your chances are smaller in terms of getting on that big tour or getting with that big hit artist or your band, you know, getting signed and and you know making it so to speak as a, as as an artist. So. You know, there's there's a there's a compromise. There's a balancing act that's constantly going on. Right. And do you find that that uh, drummers in Dallas uh, and your students in particular um, are kind of aware of of that compromise? Like what? In, in other words, what um, what keeps them in Dallas that they're yeah. willing they're willing yeah. to kind of forego yeah. uh, uh, being launched into the stratosphere the way they have the the potential to in Nashville or L.A. Right. Right. Well, um, of course, it has changed in the last 20 years because of self-production right. and, you know, being able to do everything at home on your laptop and, you you know, you can have your home studios. But I would say, you know, uh, 25 years ago, uh, the idea was, uh, and, and I mean, this was my story. I came to, uh, to Dallas from Virginia. I grew up in Virginia and graduated high school there and came straight to North Texas because my goal was to be in the one o'clock lab band Mm -hmm. and to study and to study with Ed Self. That was all I had in my mind. That was it. Both of which you did. Both of which I did. And then I, uh, uh, I left, um, my, in the middle of my last semester of my senior year, uh, to go on the road with the Paul Winter Consort. Okay, so I I knew that, like I could tell from your bio and and some articles and stuff that you hadn't finished school. I didn't realize that you left in the middle of your last semester. (laughs) Yeah, and my parents were not happy about it. I would imagine. (laughs) It's a very difficult phone call. Yeah. But it's what I went there for. I did not go there to get a degree. I went there to meet other great musicians, make connections, and go out and do it. And, uh, and Paul Winter had come through, given a concert. I met him. I met his percussionists. And, and uh, uh, you know, just a few months later, I, I got a call from one of my buddies who was also at North Texas and got the gig a couple of months before I did and then called me and said, hey, uh, Paul's interested in having you come on board. And I just, you know, that was it. So I, I, I took off and did that for about six months. And and that was, you know, it was great. It was just great to come out of school and go right on a tour. And what and, was what was the Paul Winter Consort? Because I I know I've I've heard of that group yeah. and of Paul Winter, but I have no, yeah. uh, you know, concept of yeah. what that was. Well, I, I tell you, uh, kind of the bottom line is Paul was probably the first new age world music artist of real significance. And I say new age in a good way, in mm-hmm. a positive way. Um, he blended sounds that were organic and acoustic and made the best of jazz, classical, folk, and, uh, uh, you know, just a band playing in mm-hmm. a band concept. And, uh, and he continues to, to hold that, that, uh, you know, that baton. Um, He's won a bunch of Grammys for just that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing is, he has a jazz background. He had a great jazz uh, group that toured South America and played the White House and all of that. So, you know, I knew all of this and it was it was going to allow me to not only play drum set, but to be a percussionist also. And it was the first time that I was really exposed 
to percussion instruments from around the world. Mm -hmm. And we were, you know, we were playing uh, Indian tabla tarang, and we were playing surdo drums from Brazil, and we were, uh, you know, mixing it all in with cello and 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 organ and all sorts of great sounds. And it was just, it was overwhelming, and I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this was what year? This was 1974. Wow. And yeah, I was at North Texas from 70 to 74 and played in the one o'clock in 72 and 73. And then I was getting itchy to get out there, you know. Mm. And then Paul took a break and I came back to Dallas. That was the first decision. That's the first time I made. This is all coming back around to your question of who leaves Dallas? Why do they leave? And why don't they leave? Right. So, so I still had a place in Dallas and I felt kind of like, well, I, I could just go back there pretty easily for this break. But I had also been offered an opportunity to, uh, you know, sublet a, uh, 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 uh an apartment in New York city from Ralph Towner, uh, the great uh, guitarist who was also a Paul winter consort member. Uh-huh. And that was the first time that I think, I made a decision that in some ways I regret because if I had done that, I would have been in New York City and I would have been living there. Right. And when, but, you, when you were touring with Paul, like that group was based out of New York, but you were touring. You weren't living in New York. Yeah. No, I wasn't living in New York. He's actually based out of Connecticut, but we were right next to New York City and, right. and we were touring and I would spend time in Connecticut at uh, one of the guy's places and, uh, uh, you know, we, we took the break and, um, you know, I could have stayed in the Northeast and, and I really wanted to be in that scene. And, and, uh, you know, while I was there, I like took a lesson with Elvin Jones one day and, mm-hmm. and, you know, just soaked it all up, went to the village Vanguard, saw Thad Jones and Mel Lewis. And, and I had a lot of friends in New York anyway, it would have been easy for me to do that. But, um, I knew I had gigs immediately in Dallas, and I right. thought I'd maybe be going back out on the road again. So mm-hmm. I just came back to Dallas. And uh, uh, then, um, oddly enough, um, a, a couple of months later, I think in July of 74, I got a phone call from Ray Charles. Right. And and that happened because of my Dallas connections, because really? of those musicians. Yeah. Huh. Because Ray... Um, Ray really loved musicians from New Orleans, Houston, and Dallas. Huh. And and Ray lived in Dallas uh, for a couple of years. And as a, as a matter of fact, he had his first two kids, uh, and uh, with his wife living in South Dallas, in the neighborhood that had a really rich black jazz history. Uh-huh. With with Fathead Newman, who was a great uh, friend of Ray's, and and. Um, James Clay, another great saxophone player, a number of great musicians uh, from South Dallas, which was black, and that was the jazz center. And Ray lived there in a little house that's still there. And he met all of those musicians and played jam sessions there and all of that while he was still out touring, making his name. So when the time came for a new musician to be found, Ray would quite often go to those people who had connections in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what happened with me. He, he called in, um, his saxophone player, James Clay, who was kind of like, you know, longtime member, Fathead's best friend and said, Hey, um, I'm not really liking this drummer we have right now. Do you have anybody in mind? And, 
and he gave him my name and number. And, you know, I came home one day and my roommate said, Hey, you got a call from Ray Charles. That's wild. And I thought, well, that, you know, I kind of believed it immediately because I had three or four good friends on the band. Right. And so I called this number back and sure enough, Ray answers it. You know? Right. It's and, not, you got a call from like Ray Charles's management or something. You've got a no. call from Ray. And, no, and, <laughs> and yeah. And Ray was completely hands-on about everything. For better I mean, or for every, worse. <laughs> there was no middleman in Ray's organization. Right, you know? right. And so he said, John, I heard about you. I'd like for you to play drums. Can you come up uh, to Denver tomorrow? And, and I said, sure. And I Holy just, shit. I packed my drums and got them on the plane and flew up there the next day and did one rehearsal. And then we flew off to Connecticut and did my first show with him just like that. <laughs> wow. And so you were with him for the next two years or so? Yeah, I played with him for two seasons uh, the first time. And then here's the here again, looping back to why am I in Dallas? Mm -hmm. You know, I made the decision after a couple of seasons that. I kind of got what I came for mm -hmm. and it was time for me to move on and that I had friends in Dallas that were kind of waiting for me to form a band. Mm. And I thought, you know, I can form a band with these people I know in Dallas um, easier than I can go make it as a gunslinger in L.A. or New York. Right. right. So that's why I came back to Dallas and we formed a band and I had it for uh, 11 years. It's called Firework and we. We recorded. Uh, we signed a record deal with Mercury Records. We toured, opened for a lot of big acts, but never really made it. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's why. And by that time, I'm kind of in Dallas at that point. Right. It was a little bit too late for me to go out and and you know be the gunslinger in L.A. Right, right. Yeah. And so by this time, you're like 35 or something. Yeah, 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 something like that. And yeah. um, and the other thing is. The recording scene in Dallas was happening. I mean, I was I was doing, uh, you know, recording sessions just about every day. Wow. You know, I mean, right. one day I, in my in my log, I have one day that I had five recording sessions in one day. Wow. Yeah. So it was a really vibrant scene here, and uh, and it was kind of hard to pull away. But oh, a yeah. lot of my friends were Greg Bissonette and I were roommates. Uh, in the eighties wow. and, and, uh, for about a year. And then he decided I'm going to LA and, you know, I helped him pack up his station wagon and there he went and, right. <laughs> and, and, and made it, you know, big immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, but we were, you know, we're still best friends and he throws me gigs every now and then, uh, you know, some stuff that, that he can't do, you know, he'll, yeah, yeah. he'll have them give me a call and, and, uh, it is great. Cause I get to go out and play with, you know, some names every now and then because of that connection. Right. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but at one point, wasn't Dallas, uh, like a big hub for, um, uh, commercial jingle recording. Yes, that was it. I mean, the, the concept of a commercial jingle was created in Dallas. Really? <laughs> yes, it was created that whole, because back to that corporate world thing, the corporations were so strong here mm -hmm. and the relationship with radio, somebody came up with an idea of this, you know, here's how we, cause these corporations were trying to figure out how do we make more money? And some smart, uh, uh, you know, music guy said, uh, well, how about this? We'll come up with this cute little ditty that sings about your company, mm -hmm. you know, Oh, thank heaven for Seven Eleven, right. that kind of thing. 
And then that industry was born here. There was a company called PAMS. There was another one, TM. Uh, there were a number of them uh, that um, just got huge. Yeah. And, th- and, those, and, and I'm talking about in the mid-60s now, before I got there, in the right, mid-60s. Right. But it just blew up and, uh, and stayed very vibrant through the 70s, 80s, into the 90s. And then, uh, you know, things kind of started cooling out around 2000 because then all the machines had taken over. Right. You, you, did, you didn't need a drummer. You could record with a Lindrum in your home studio and do those tracks, take them to the big studio and finish it out. Mm-hmm. And that started that whole idea and movement along with, um, you know, the union becoming less strong. They, the union became weaker. And uh, but it was really self-production, the ability to do it yourself. You know, it, it started weakening at that point. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's kind of come full circle because. Um, artists like creative artists, songwriters, um, are, are now creating songs with the specific goal of getting them placed in a commercial or right. in a soundtrack. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's no longer the case where, you know, a corporation, uh, has kind of an in-house apparatus to write and record yeah. jingles. The artists are coming to them saying, you know, yeah. here's all these songs I've written. Will that's one right. of them work for your car commercial? <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And, um, uh, you know, in my uh, music production class that I teach at uh, Southern Methodist University, um, I kind of talk about back in the day in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, you did not want your band sound featured, connected to a corporate product. Right. Uh, you know, the doors were famous for that. They turned down millions of dollars on Light My Fire. Yeah. You know, they were not going to desecrate their music. The Beatles have been famous for that. You yeah. know, yeah. Uh, Rolling Stones, not so much. They were ready to take the money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you look know at them now. <laughs> yeah. But but that was the feeling. And you just did not do that. You know, those worlds were separate. And that's why because because they were using jingles, which were kind of, you know, sweet little, you know, cute little things that really weren't music. Right. And um and of course, all of that's changed now because uh, that's how you make money now. Streaming is not paying anything. Right. And the way you make money is to have your band and your song licensed for a Ford commercial. Right. That's real money. And nobody cares about the association with the corporate mentality anymore. It's mm-hmm. not like it was back then because back then the corporate thing represented uh, the establishment, the man, all of these things that that artists Rock people, even jazzers, all real artists were trying to separate themselves from an right. association with right. and, and, and really, uh, you know, define that independence of what it means to be an artist. Yeah. Now, all of that's out the window. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, some uh, musicians don't really appreciate the extent to which you know, music, music has always had a patron. Musicians have always had um, higher ups, you know, paying them to do what they do, whether it was yeah. the state or the king or the church, um, right. you know, going back centuries. And the fact that right. it's corporations now, um, you know, I under, is, it feels kind of understandably squicky. But, yeah. you know, if, yeah. you don't, if you don't have a patron – paying you to do what you do, it's, it's hard yeah. to really put any money together. <laughs> yeah. 
oh, it's just such a different time now. And and I'm really uh, appreciative of my students because they, they keep young ideas in my head. You mm-hmm. know, some things I don't necessarily agree with or think are really very good, but I have to pay attention to all of their ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and I do. And they do come in with some great ideas, too, you know. So it's just, you know, part of this thing of wanting to keep learning and growing. And, and you know, like I was watching the Grammys last night, you know, uh-huh. and it's been difficult to watch the Grammys over the last few years <laughs> yeah. for somebody my age and, uh-huh. and where I'm coming from with music. And and us talking about being real drummers, then you got a problem there because at least two thirds of the acts last night didn't have a drummer, right. you know. It was either pre-recorded or it was, uh, you know, a loop or it was this or that. Um, now you did see a few great drummers on on the stage last night. You saw Abe Laboreal Jr. was with Lady Gaga, uh, Chad Smith, Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, yeah, yeah. then I'm jumping up and shouting and going, right. "Yeah, yeah," right. you know. But I'm I'm really having to work at appreciate appreciating some of the other artists who you know just don't have the band they're playing with the tracks yeah uh, but you know that's okay it's another thing you you just have to kind of take it in and and make yourself grow from it mm-hmm. somehow you teach at southern methodist university um and do you teach uh music production and drums I do. I, I, I've been the drum set instructor there since about 2006. And then four or five years later, I, you know, when I was feeling more comfortable there, uh, I kind of looked around and noticed that the School of Music did not have a course in music production. Hmm. Now, they had electronic music and, and uh, you know, electronic recording, and they had uh, recording uh, techniques with microphones and this and that. But what they didn't have was a course that taught how do you create a product and get it into the marketplace? Mm. What goes along with that? Um, and so this course I teach, so then basically I went to the dean and said, hey, you guys need this and I can teach it. Um, and and again, I don't have a degree, you know, remember I right. I took off my last semester. <laughs> right. But but SMU is a private school, and they they hire a lot of professionals like the guys with the Dallas Symphony and mm-hmm. the women from the Dallas Symphony. Uh, they're adjunct uh, assistant professors and and teachers, and so that's what's great about SMU is they call on the professional community to come teach these kids about it from learning in the street, mm-hmm. not from books. Right. So I put it together and, and proposed a syllabus, and they said, yeah, this is great. So I've been teaching that course ever since for about seven years now, um, seven or eight years now. And, uh, and then uh, – and it was, it's really been well-received to the point of where we, we decided uh, to go ahead and create a minor in music production. Hmm. So we – the, I was put on the committee with the dean and uh, and some other faculty members, and we created this minor in music production, which involves all of the things you need to know: the software, uh, the the microphones, the um, you know the the songwriting, the composition for film. All of that is right. all in this minor, and then I have a just added a second course where I take my students into the recording studio, and we're in the studio all the time 
recording, exploring, learning. And they're wow. bringing in their laptop compositions. They're bringing in their guitars, mm-hmm. their keyboards. We're starting from scratch, and I'm, and I'm helping them with understanding how do you place a piece of music in a film score? How do you create yourself as an artist? Uh, what if you want to do a commercial for a Pizza Hut? Uh, you know, all those different applications. And then, most importantly, where does the money come from when something <laughs> successful happens? How do you get paid? Right. And that's a tough subject these days with streaming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it sounds like this this whole course of study is is a good blend of the, the technical with the conceptual and the, the creative with the practical. Yeah, right? it, it is. Yeah. And the thing about it is they help me to know how to teach that because that's all these kids know today. They don't separate things out. Right. It, it's all smashed together. Right. You know, and it's very difficult. Like, for instance... The laptop producers, you know, they're just like pulling chord changes and loops and ideas in a MIDI structure and bringing it into their software, and they're composing that way. They mm-hmm. never go to a piano or a guitar, and they don't know what a C minor uh, chord is. Right. But they know what they hear and what they like, mm-hmm. and it's a different way of creating. And you you cannot deny creation in any form. Right. And, and expression in any form. So. Yeah. That's been great for me to learn from them that way um, instead of beating them over the head and saying, no, you got to do it this way. But I maintain there's nothing like a real drummer. You're, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was talking uh, about this the other day with a friend of mine about how I realized recently one of the one of the main differences between, you know, a, a, a loop or, you know, any computer generated <laughs> drum sound and a human drummer, it's, you know, people focus on, um, you know, how how realistic electronic drum sounds can now be. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's been the focus of, of um, you know, the argument between the drum machine and the human drummer. But I realized recently, like, what part, part of what makes a human drummer human is just the ability to make decisions <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the moment. And, it and is. you know, music making is about... Uh, making decisions and being in the room with other humans who make decisions who then affect the decisions you make. Um, yes, yes. And, and I think that's what, when people say there's no substitute for a real drummer, I, I realized recently, I think that is is what part of what they're talking about. Well, it is. It's the interaction. It's the... Uh it's it's what a real drummer brings from all of his or her years of study and mm-hmm. listening. And, uh, and see, that's the other thing that bothers me a little bit with uh, this generation um, is their, uh, well, their listening habits, hmm. how their, their practices of listening, how they listen, what they listen to, and, and, you know, how deeply they listen to it. Because it's very easy for this generation to jump from one cut to another yeah. with the streaming thing, put their playlist together and go from John Bonham uh, to a loop right. of, of something silly that has no depth to it at all. Right. And they can do that in a microsecond yeah. and not know the difference. Mm-hmm. And that bothers me a little bit because they're not grabbing the significance of what John Bonham did right. and uh, and continues to inspire, mm-hmm. and 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 then that takes a little time to go into that, and I don't know if they have the time. Yeah, you know, 
Yeah, it's like, yeah. I don't have the time for that, you know? None of them, to my knowledge, listen to an entire album all the way through. Yeah. And that's, how do you not listen to the second side of Abbey Road all the way through? How do you not do that? Mm-hmm. Um, but yet they don't. And um, that's that's a new world. It's different. From, it's difficult for me to grasp. But um, I think you have to lay it all out. You have to appreciate not doing that. And then it's important for them to appreciate why you do that. You know, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. So in, in what ways do um, what you teach in your music production course and what you teach to your drum students overlap? Yeah, that's a good question, um, because I have some of the same students. A mm-hmm. lot of my drum students are in my class. And, um, um, you know, I put on a different hat, um, certainly as a class lecturer, and then when I'm one-on-one with my students, because one-on-one with my with my drum students, you know, I can see all the warts and the, the deficiencies and the things they need to work on. Right. And then then you are just going back in time. You're pulling out stick control. You're pulling out, you know, Chapin. You're, you're bringing out, and then there's plenty of great new books too. But, you know, for me, it just really comes down to listening to lots of different drummers. Yeah. And and figuring out what they're doing. And see, I have a unique challenge here at SMU because SMU is an excellent classical music school. The Mm -hmm. classical music department, opera, singing, choir, uh, orchestra, it's, it's one of the best in the country. And that is the environment here. The environment for commercial music, the jazz, the pop, the whatever, it hasn't been that strong. And that's why we created this minor in music production to uh, uh, help that become a bigger part of SMU. Um, So here's what I'm uh, faced with. All of my drum students come out of classical music orchestra background. Mm -hmm. They are excellent orchestral percussionists. They can read anything. They can play that mallet, that timpani, that snare drum. They know that stuff, and they can read anything. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem. Because, <laughs> because when they come in and sit down at a drum set, and the first thing is, is what do I read? Right. And I have to say to them, you're not going to read anything right now. You're going to play this instrument, and mm-hmm. here's how you're going to go about it. Just start playing. Yeah. Now, how do you uh, – well, I don't know what to play. Well – um, you know, we can put some charts up, but it's not going to tell you anything about how to play a drum set. Right. It's just going to give you a few little simple suggestions. Or we can take this technique book and it'll totally just, uh, you know, bring you down because <laughs> there's no music in there. Right. It's, it's just uh, difficult uh, hills to climb. <laughs> right. And that's not going to inspire you. So what you have to do is go listen and then hear it in your head, and then try to play it. And that is back to that thing of listening again. Mm-hmm. Now, they are listening, you know, to their favorite music, and then they're coming in, and they and, and, and that's what I have them do. You bring in what you're listening to, and I'm going to help you figure out what that drummer is doing. Mm-hmm. And you know what's funny? Half the time they're bringing in music where it's not a real drummer. I know. I have the same thing. Like I... So, 
I really, know. I really try to get my students uh, like in the in the door through yeah. through music that they like, and they bring yeah. in what they like. And I'm like, well, yeah. there's no drums on this. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, because of this, I'm going to say something that a lot of drum teachers would find uh, heretical and not agree with at all. But I'm not big on transcriptions mm-hmm. for that very reason. Um, I'm trying to get them away from the eye stimulation. Right. I'm trying to get them away from from figuring out how somebody does something using their eyes. Yeah. Because that's a whole different connection when you're reading music and 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 uh you know you're you're figuring it out in your brain by a visual stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um it is not the same thing because you're not qualifying the sound. You're not co- you can't codify the sound. Right. And you have to have that sound in your head. So the you know the 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 notational uh, transcription thing, I think is great for drummers who already know what the sound is. It's in their head, yeah. and they're just trying to quickly go to breaking it down. Right. But but teaching new students by by that method, I don't go for. Mm-hmm. I think you have to create the sound in the head, play from that sound that's in your mind, and find inspiration from sound. Mm-hmm. Not from hills to climb that are in a in a book. Right, right. So what um what is the what does that process look like for your students? I mean, I know I imagine it's different for every student, but mm-hmm. are there some uh, are there some generalities you've drawn about, about yeah. that process? Well, here's here's my process. You know, you don't have to be a great reader to read stick control, mm-hmm. right? All it is is left, right, left, right, combinations of left, left right, left, you know, combinations of threes and twos. That's really what it is. And, and you don't have to be a great reader to get that concept down. So uh, first of all, if their hands are in good shape and they can play it with their hands, and I'm talking about the first seven or eight pages of stick control, um, the, the just the, the techniques of, of stickings, then you apply it to the drum set. You know, the R becomes the bass drum, the L is the snare drum, and then you play those those uh, those different uh, stickings. Uh, you know, now you've got it going between your your kick and your snare, and then you add the cymbals on top of that, where with uh, straight eighth notes on the hi hat, then straight eighth notes on the ride cymbal with a hi hat on two and four. Mm-hmm. Then you go into the jazz pattern, right. the shuffle pattern where you're playing in triplets, but you develop all of that uh, independence, all the independence you need, you can develop in those first eight or nine pages of stick control using that method. So that's the method I use because because independence is, is where they're hung up. They, mm-hmm. they can't do that. Right. So I start with that simple, you know, independence thing in, in, uh, in straight eight and swing worlds. And then go to the examples that they can hear, that they hear Mitch Mitchell play this, and, and they hear Chad Smith play that. And, and then you really screw them up by playing them some Stuart Copeland. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nothing, nothing is, is what you think it's going to be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's basically my method. Um, and what have you found as far as these, these classical students like like you said, finding the sound, finding the flavor and the inflection of all these different drummers. Well, I'm going to tell you another problem that is also controversial, which is using earbuds, Hmm. Uh, using, you know, uh, plugging up your ears so that you don't damage them, a good thing. Right. 
but plugging up your ears and then you can't hear the subtleties and the sound. Mm-hmm. That's a bad thing. Yeah. And that's what I'm finding with a lot of students who constantly practice with earplugs in. Uh-huh. They don't hear the overtones of a ride cymbal when you play it with the shoulder of a stick. Yeah. They don't hear it. They don't know what kind of sound they're creating. And that doesn't matter if you're just smashing and crashing and playing with a heavy metal band or a really hard rock group. There, there, there are no subtleties that way. But if you're a jazz player at playing at, you know, probably a lower volume, you need to lose those earplugs. Mm-hmm. You need to hear all the small nuances. I'm pretty sure Elvin Jones and Tony Williams and you know, Max Roach did not play with earplugs. Right. Even Art Blakey did not play with earplugs. Mm-hmm. You cannot have both. You can't play with the correct touch and have earbuds if you're going to be a jazz drummer. Yeah. You know, and and I won't. I don't want people to hurt their ears. You know. So yeah, if you're just practicing. And you're not going for the sound. You're going for independence. You're going for new new ideas and trying some licks. Yeah, put those plugs in. But when the time comes that you're making music and you're trying to really recreate the sound that you want to be there, you have to take those plugs out and hopefully be in a room that is soundproofed well. What's your approach um, as far as you know teaching jazz and developing, like you said, the jazz touch, the the independence, the improvisation, versus you know non non jazz styles and the styles that drummers typically get paid for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it is it's a different world, but you know um, I, I I try to put across that the balance of the four sounds that you're creating simultaneously, mm-hmm. you know, because you got four limbs, you're creating four sounds at once. That balance between those four sounds, no matter if it's jazz or rock or blues or whatever it is, there's a balance between those four sounds that create one sound. And that's what is important is to create that balance. The great drummers have a sound and they have a sound that is directly connected to the balance of those four limbs mm-hmm. and uh, meaning the cymbal, the snare drum, the bass drum, and whatever, you know, your left foot is doing at the time. Right. Um, so, uh, like the great blues drummers, when they play a shuffle, you know, the jazz drummers can turn their nose up against it, you know, and the rock drummers won't get it. And because uh, they think, oh, well, that's just so simple. That's nothing. You know, it's just do the da da do the da da. Then the bass drums, quarter notes and the snare drums shuffling along. And there's nothing there. Right. But that's so wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because what is there is a balance between those sounds that creates one sound that gets the job done. Yeah. And a surefire sign of, of a jazz drummer. Uh, not knowing how to play the blues is to have a light bass drum mm-hmm. and a heavy and a heavy ride cymbal yep. and no hi-hat to speak of and a snare drum that is afraid, <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's, you know, and that's balance. And that's the difference between, you know, uh, you know, a great shuffle played by a blues player as opposed to a jazz player. Having said that, 
Mel Lewis played a fantastic shuffle mm-hmm. because of the balance yeah. of between those voices. Yeah. I I like I like the word balance because it, it does not imply uh equality. It's no. not it's not about making all four of those limbs the same. It's it's about knowing uh, what role each of those voices plays in different styles and according to different drummers and being able to like tweak those faders in your yes. brain. Yes, um, absolutely. And Ed Sof had, had great exercises on that where you would play uh, a crescendo over like over a two bar uh, uh, exercise. The bass drum might be playing quarter notes. Um, you, you'd have four parts assigned. But the bass drum would play a crescendo in its part over two bars, and the snare drum would play a day crescendo mm-hmm. in its part over two bars. Right. That really, really helped you have that gain that control and and keep the other two items, the the hi hat on two and four, and the and the ride cymbal constant. Right. Not be, and and you get a student to try and do that. The first thing you'll see is they can't do it. First of all, but their right foot. And right hand are going to be connected, yeah. involved, and so that's a great exercise. And I'll tell you another one too. Um, uh, Chris Layton, the drummer for Stevie Ray Vaughan, mm-hmm. um, he had a simple exercise that I saw in Modern Drummer that was basically playing unison. You know, uh, doing unison bass drum and snare drum, whether it's eighth notes or whatever it is you're doing, um, and and involving your hands. But 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 really making a point out of being able to play exactly together, and that's not that easy. You yeah. think it is, but it is not that easy to play exactly together with your snare drum and your bass drum. Right. Because when you do, that's when you really create a sound. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's a Otherwise, great point. That's a great it's a point. flam. Yeah. It's a flam. Right, right. Because <laughs> and, like playing with balance isn't just about volume. It's about it's about putting all four of your limbs on the same interpretive grid. Yeah. Which I think a lot of beginning or intermediate drummers have have trouble doing. I still have trouble doing it sometimes. Sure. Like I'll, I'll notice, you know, my if if I'm playing a shuffle. You know, yeah. my my ride shuffle is a little bit different than my snare shuffle, and I gotta I gotta put them together, and yeah. and then it, and then know, it becomes homogenous. Right, and if you're playing a backbeat and a hi hat on two and four, and you can't hear the hi hat, mm-hmm. either your hi hat's not loud enough or your snare drum's too loud, mm. and 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 I'm not saying they're they're supposed to be the same volume. I'm saying they're in two different frequencies, and you need to be able to hear both of them mm-hmm. because the two of them exactly together create a sound right and if one's missing it's not a sound right you know, right it's not the same sound so you know it, and chris layton was great at that that's why you go listen to a stevie ray vaughn shuffle yep. it's all about that balance man. yep that's i i i whenever i'm uh you know introducing the concept of the shuffle to my students yeah. i play him stevie ray vaughn i'm like this, right. this is what it is <laughs> that's, that's it man there's, there's many and, different there's different shuffles different interpretations or whatever yeah. but but there's no better example yeah uh, and i just re you know i in the last few years have been fortunate to play with some great great blues players and r&b guys I, i've toured a little bit with delbert mcclinton mm-hmm. uh, and he has a long heritage a long history 
of great bands, great drummers that have played in that band. And he's still, and he's got his band today is fantastic. And, uh, his drummer today is Jack Bruno, who played with Joe Cocker and Tina Turner. He's in Nashville and he's not a complicated drummer, Mm -hmm. but man, he has a sound and a feel. He puts it just in the right place. And, and, you know, I, I came up, at North Texas with as many complexities as humanly possible on playing jazz drums, right. you know, studied Tony and Elvin and, and everybody and tried to do everything I could to make it as complicated as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, and I love it. I'm, I'm not dismissing it all. I love to play that music also, but lately I have just really, really enjoyed playing simple yep. and playing playing for a sound and playing for the song and, uh, uh, you know, analyzing that thing, uh, of how do you make it feel laid back without dragging, yeah. you know, that whole question. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you a little story. Um, I, um, uh, Greg Bissonette, again, my longtime pal who calls me to sub for him sometimes called me to sub for him with Joe Walsh mm. for a week. Uh, uh, a few years ago and Joe had a new record coming out and he was going to do a big uh, uh, release party at the Troubadour in LA. And so uh, I went out and rehearsed with him for a couple of days. Joe uh, uses two drummers, you know, he's used two drummers for a long time. And, and the other drummer was a guy named Rick Richards, who's a great drummer from Austin. And, uh, and, and Joe was getting into this Texas musician thing and he was hiring all musicians from Texas. So when Greg told him about me, he thought, Oh, that's great. He's from Texas. Mm-hmm. He'll have that feel, you know, yeah, kind of that Stevie Ray Vaughan sort of school of thinking. But, um, so anyway, Rick had been playing with him a while. I was just subbing for the other drummer, uh, for a week to do these gigs. So I, I had to come into that situation and, and fit in. And plus playing with another drummer. Yeah. Which is not easy. That's a whole other thing. How do two drummers play together and you don't have flams? Right. Right. And Joe's idea of what it's supposed to sound like being in the Eagles is that it's supposed to be relaxed. It is not on top of it. Right. And what the role I found myself playing was Joe was looking to me to count the songs off and make sure it didn't drag. And he was looking to Rick to make it feel really great. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of became clear. So I kind of had to talk to Rick about it a little bit, you know, cause we can't be conflicting. If I feel like it's starting to be too relaxed, he's going to look at me to crack a whip and make sure that it does not drag. Right. And that kind of happened a little bit in rehearsal. So, I finally came to the conclusion of what needed to happen with with Rick and myself and make Joe happy and make it feel great and maintain tempo was this. The bass drum on the downbeat has to be there. Mm -hmm. It has to be where a metronome would be. (laughs) But the snare drum, the backbeat, has to be just about five or ten milliseconds late. Yeah, yeah. But when that bass drum comes back around again, it's got to be on the money. Yep. yep. That yep. way you won't drag, but it'll give the illusion of making it feel 
like it's relaxed. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I'm, yeah. I'm flashing back to when I lived in L.A. and I got to see uh, Steve Ferroni perform a couple times and um, Herman Matthews. Yeah. Um, and both That's those guys did exactly what you're talking about. Like yeah. the, the beginning of every bar was straight down the middle and every right. backbeat was on the backside. Yeah. And it gave every bar just this yeah. little push and pull yeah. that, that yeah. kept you in it. Yeah. And, you know, and it takes – you can't do that with all music. Right. You, can only, you do that with certain music that asks for it, you know? Yeah. But you do have to have that awareness and that discipline to execute it when, when it's necessary. Right. Now, you know, we're talking about this in this real intellectual sort of framework. And, of course, we know there are drummers that never think about it but just naturally do it. Right. You know? Right. And, boy, my hat's off to them. I love them. Yeah. You know? Me too. And, and, and you're you're like me, I think, in that your your college days were just so jazz heavy and and uh, you know complexity and being on top of the beat was kind of where we lived. And yeah. um, and I, I just flash back to your um, you know your your uh, Ray Charles experience. That was yeah. just a couple years after you had come out of this really intensive oh. jazz uh, school. Man. That was that was night and day. I yeah. mean, because at North Texas, it was all about the energy. You know, they got this joke: higher, faster, louder. Right. You know, and and that's kind of what you get. You got a bunch of college kids full of adrenaline and, and testosterone. Oh man! <laughs> and we played fast and high and loud. Yeah. And and I don't mean high like drugs high. I mean right. high like those trumpet players right. are trying you know, to hit the highest note they can. But then when I got with Ray and I'm playing with these black musicians that had played with Count Basie and Duke Ellington and cause all of those guys, you know, came to Ray, mm-hmm. uh, Ray knew them all. And, and he would hire Johnny Coles and Henry Coker and these guys that had a great, you know, uh, residency with Count Basie and Duke Ellington and all these other great musicians. And man, I found out real quick that I was on top of it mm. because there was like, you could drive a Mack truck through <laughs> my figure and, and what the trombones were playing right, or what the Barry sax player was playing. You know, they knew how to relax and play it like they talked. Right. And, and, and it became, you know, I just really became aware. I had to take, I had to make some adjustments. You right. Know? Was, was and, Ray traveling with a full big band at that time? Was it? Like, oh yeah. Man. Always, yeah. You know, when when Ray got hot and famous and got the money, which was around 1960, yeah, um, he uh, immediately went to a big band. He always wanted an 18 piece big band. Man, I I never realized that actually. I never mm-hmm. put that together. And um, we toured everywhere. He had a private jet, uh, 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 a prop jet, and that was what was great because I had I had been given an offer to to play with Woody Herman also. But Ray was paying me more, and they were going everywhere in a bus, and I was flying with Ray. And right. I, I just wasn't going to quit Ray to go do that, although yeah. I really wanted to play with Woody Herman from the musical standpoint. Mm-hmm. I had that band. But I stayed with Ray because of that was one of the reasons, but also because uh, these guys, you know, there were, there were um, 18 people in the band, and then there were the four Raylettes and, you know, valet and road manager and Ray. So it was about 24, 25 people, something like that. And all of them were black except for me and a trombone player and a trumpet player. Really? So 
Yeah. So I was in their world. Yeah. And and that's exactly the world I wanted to be in. <laughs> and I wanted to see and feel and hear and 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 just try and be a part of it and be a fly on the wall in a way. Mm-hmm. So, so that experience just really, you know, was huge for me and it's, you know, it's never left me. Yeah. And there was never any, uh, there was never any tension. You, you came out of it with, I mean, I can tell you truthfully, never, I never got a bad vibe. Mm -hmm. I never was, uh, in a position where I didn't feel like I was welcome. Mm -hmm. I I really didn't. I mean, in the beginning I did because I didn't know. Right that it would be so welcoming. I had to kind of have my antenna up and make sure that I didn't say or do the wrong thing. And that is kind of like I was in their world and their family. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, I, I kept my mouth shut most of the time. <laughs> you know? And, uh, but, but that didn't last long. I mean, they were, they were very welcoming because, you know, in that world, they had already lived in that where it was, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, blacks and whites in bands that were traveling together, you know, right. and it was nothing new to them, nothing new to them. Yeah. They weren't uncomfortable about it. So why should I be, you right, know? Right. And, uh, and when they saw that we all have the same values anyway, and love the same music and, and speak the same language and eat the same food and, 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 you know, it was great. I, yeah. I just have had no negative thoughts about any of that. My my co-host uh, Matthew Kraus uh, has lived in Nashville for about twenty years, and and a little while ago he did a, a roundtable discussion called "The Black Drummers of Nashville" um, mm-hmm. with Hubert Payne and Marcus Finney and um, a, a few others. There was five or six of them, I think. But there's this there's been this phenomenon in the last five or ten years. Oh, uh, um, uh, oh, what Keo, about Keo Stroud was on it. Yeah, uh, and now um, um, Phillips. Uh, what's his Derek name? Derek Phillips. Derek Phillips with with Hank Jr. Derek's right. Great. So Damn. they had this whole conversation great. about how um, you know more and more uh, white country acts with white country audiences yeah. are, are putting black musicians in their band, and what yeah. you know what the dynamic is like on stage with the audience, what it's like on the bus, and they said a lot of the same things you did. Yeah. Like, yeah. At the end of the day, we have the same values. We yeah. you know there was a period of adjustment where I was like, yeah. okay, I'm in their world, and let's see yeah. what it feels like. But you had the opposite experience. Hey. You you know, I think uh, um, one thing that all musicians are proud of, and it doesn't matter if you're country, jazz, whatever, all musicians will go to that the music itself equalizes everything. Mm-hmm. And it does not matter when you're talking about music and you're playing music. You know, you may have political feelings about one thing one way or the other, or you may have some deep-rooted biases that you can't help because you were born in that situation mm-hmm. and you're working on it. But when it comes down to one, two, three, four, here we go, <laughs> there is no none of that in any world that I've seen, Right. you know, any musical world that right. I've ever witnessed, you know, in my 66 years. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. This past weekend was the 55th 
anniversary of the Beatles occur, uh, uh, you know, performing on the Ed Sullivan show. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was, that's what kickstarted me as a drummer. Yeah. I've, I've heard so many drummers and musicians yeah. of your generation point yeah. to that night as the uh, night it, where they were like, this is it. This is what I I'm mean, doing. <laughs> it, it's, it's, I mean, I, I'm just going to say it. It is, it is the most important single night in the history of American popular music. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, because 73 million people were watching this and the next week, uh, this is no exaggeration. I'm sure tens of thousands of kids went out and bought instruments and started taking lessons and put bands together. Yep. You know, the, the effect was unbelievable, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, I try and get that across to my students too, how, what, you know, what a big deal it was. Right, yeah. right. And I mean, to, to try and kind of make them aware of those moments in their life, like pay attention to when right. your gut wakes up and is like, holy shit, this is awesome. I need to do yeah. that. I know. As opposed Man. to, like you said, just climbing hills, uh, yeah. you know, putting yourself through paces for, for right. the sake of it. Like follow, right. follow what, uh, you know, really makes you, uh, what really lights you up. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and it's hard these days because of social media and you have so many opportunities to look in different directions, mm -hmm. you know. And back then there were only three TV stations, three yeah. TV channels. And on Sunday night, there was only one that mattered. And that was the Ed Sullivan show. And that's mm -hmm. what everybody watched. And, uh, yeah, you know, every time I talk about it, it makes me feel old. But, <laughs> you know, I can't you can't deny it, you know, so. Yeah. And it's just it's so important in so many ways, and and I'm just thrilled that Ringo and uh, Paul are still out there doing it. You yeah. know, it's, it's wonderful, and that Greg's playing with Ringo, and it's it's great. Yeah, what a story, man. And yeah. Greg Greg is such a, a a a great advocate for Ringo's drumming. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I'm I'm a huge Ringo fan. He was yeah. you know he was my first drum hero. Yeah. Um, and I you know he gets a bad rap for mm -hmm. whatever reason, but Greg is really good. It's just kind of pointing to a bunch of examples of how musical Ringo is and yeah. how creative he was. And, um, um, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Anybody that thinks otherwise just really doesn't know what they're talking about. And, <laughs> there and they don't, and they haven't looked into it. They haven't, they haven't tried to figure it out. And, uh, um, you know, um, jumping from that to uh, Stuart Copeland, Stuart and I talk about it a lot. And Stuart just did a film uh, for the BBC that's the history of drumming, of drum set, of the, of the history of the drum set that he wow. wrote and presents. And he goes and he talks to uh, 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 Stanton Moore and Sheila E. and uh, Taylor Hawkins and, and Chad Smith. He has he talks with all of them about this. And then yeah. and Ringo always comes up. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and and it just how important he was. Uh, but it's a great film, and and uh, what's the name of the film? It, it's uh, gosh, you know, I can't remember exactly. But if you go on YouTube and you and you search Stuart Copeland BBC drum set film, it'll yeah. it'll pop up. And yeah. I, but I forgot what the title is. And, uh, and I you, don't. I'll yeah. I'll find it and and put it in yeah. the episode page. Yes, yeah, great. Um, and so I was going to ask you about Stuart because you did yeah. a project with him um, yeah. that, that spanned, uh, you know, live playing and, and a, a documentary, I believe. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. What was that? It's been it's been the big project of my life for the last 10 years. Um, 
um, back in, I'm in a, a world percussion group called D drum mm-hmm. and, uh, and we were, uh, around before the drum company D drum, right. but that's <laughs> either here nor there. Yeah. We, we spell ours with an apostrophe D apostrophe D, but anyway, so we've been doing this, uh, uh, friends of mine in the Dallas area who are professional percussionists with the Dallas symphony and, and all of us world music advocates and, and for, you know, 15, 20 years or so, we were traveling all around the world, uh, collecting instruments, meeting master drummers, taking lessons, videotaping those lessons, and learning how to play these exotic instruments. And, and we spent a good while in Bali and Java um, studying uh, this technique. And so we came back, and we would, we would just rehearse and play for ourselves, and then we'd bastardize these techniques and make it our own sound. And the Dallas Symphony heard about it, and they had us uh, uh, play for one of their events. And then they came to us and said, hey, this is really great. We want to commission a work hmm. uh, featuring you all with the Dallas Symphony. And pretty big deal. And mm-hmm. so we had to find a composer. That was the thing, to find a composer that's going to write something that you guys can can play with the orchestra. So, you know, we thought about who can do that. And, uh, and Stuart Copeland just really, you know, surfaced and popped up with all of that. But it was 2007, and he was in the end of his tour with the police that, uh, you know, when they got back together again. And it was right. a huge 18-month world tour. So when I talked to Stuart's agent, they were said I was, like, skeptical that he'd be able to do it because mm-hmm. of this. And they said, well, we got word that Stuart's about ready to call this tour, you know, and, and he's, he's had his, excuse me, I guess he and Sting had their fill of each other after 18 months. Again. Yeah. again, <laughs> And, um, and so one day it's kind of like the Ray Charles thing. One day I came home and I have a message from Stuart Copeland on my phone wow. <laughs> on my machine. And, uh, I was like, wow. And it was, I called him up and, uh, he was like, yeah, I'd love to do this. This sounds great. You know, I'm, I'm going to be getting off the tour. And I said, okay, well, great. Well, uh, uh, can you come to Dallas and meet us? And he said, sure. You know, so he got off that tour in August of 2008 and then came to Dallas the first week of September. Mm-hmm. And he already had a three-movement, 35-minute concerto composed. Wow. Uh, I mean, he had it sketched out. and yeah. he recorded it with an electronic orchestra, had taken into account a lot of our instruments, came in, and we met, and uh, and it just immediately began to work, and it was uh, close to a three-year process. And during that time, I, I was the producer of the project for the, for the pulling it all together and being the communicator between the group and Stuart, because that's I, I do a lot of music production stuff. Mm-hmm. So it fell on me to do that. So... Um, over that period, what was great was I, I got to be become, you know, a, a working friend with Stuart. And in the beginning, it was like, holy cow, this is Stuart Copeland. You know, the, the drummer in me was thinking, this is Stuart Copeland. You know, holy cow, so many things I want to talk to him about. But we got so embroiled in this production where he would compose something because he puts on a whole different hat, you know, when he's yeah. a composer. And and uh, and and we got so in you know embroiled in or or not embroiled but just in you know just immersed in our project together mm-hmm. that we became friends. I mean, like real friends, and I consider him a real friend. And 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 I didn't think that much about him 
in that other way of this legendary drummer. I'd call him up or he'd call me up and we'd just start talking about other stuff. Right. And of course, eventually that other stuff would creep in and I'd talk to him about the police and how'd you do this beat and what was that, what was going on with that. And, 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 you know, of course he's happy to talk to me about all of that stuff. Yeah. And I would go out to his place in LA and work with him. And he's got this great, beautiful studio called the sacred grove at his house uh, over his big garage and um and a room filled with instruments mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of instruments and and his drum set is there and the snare drum that he played all of the hits on oh, uh, man. it's a pearl snare drum he's a tama endorsee endorser but he played a pearl snare drum on all of those police hits he uh-huh. says it's the same one so here's what's interesting. Back to that sound thing and that balance thing. Yeah. I sit down at Stuart's drums. He says, yeah, go ahead, you know, play. So I sit down at Stuart's drums and I play them and kind of sounds like me. Right. You know, and then <laughs> Stuart sits down on those drums. Yeah. And, and it's Stuart Copeland. Right. And, and it, got, it just goes to how little the drums have to do with it. Yep. Yep. So I'd say maybe... Ten percent. The drums have to do with what that sound is. Yeah, that comes for all of us. Yeah, we're like guitar players. It's in our hands. Like the gear, the gear is a piece of it, but the our sound is in our hands. Yeah, yeah. The gear is about the infatuation thing. About ooh, I love this and I love that, and it's going to make me play better. And I'm going to say, you know, but it's really not the magic solution. Right, right. Do you you know the comedian Bill Burr? Yeah, I've he's, heard of him. He's like a weekend warrior drummer, and uh, uh, Bonham is his guy. And uh, he was he was talking to Mark Marin about how he was like, you know, I went out, I wanted to sound like Bonham. You know, I went out, I got yeah. the the Ludwig <laughs> Vista light with the twenty six inch kick, and I got you know all the peisty cymbals, and I even got the hi hat stand that he had, yeah. like this vintage yeah. gear. You know what I still sounded like me. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and you know, but I got to say this about Stewart, he is such a great person mm-hmm. in general all the way around and i mean that sincerely um he's great to work with he's got one of the strongest work ethics of any person i've ever met he's totally positive and and i've been working with him for the last 10 years and i was just out of his place a few months ago he and i did a uh well the film we we did this piece this 35 minute concerto is called gamelon de drum and it features a lot of gamelon music mm-hmm. um and we performed it with four or five different orchestras around the country. And we actually are going to perform it again. We're talking to some other orchestras. Stewart always shows up. He hangs out during the rehearsal, talks to the – helps the conductor. Um, and But just basically shows up and is Stuart Copeland right. and, and does interviews. And we hang out and we're all best friends and have a great time. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a big party. And he's great. Uh, he's, he's just so – you know, sharp and funny and innovative. And, and the one thing that I have really, really learned from Stuart over the 10 last 10 years is to not be afraid of anything. Hmm. He has no fear. He writes operas, he writes ballets. He, he might not write the best one in the world. It might be a symphony that is good, not great. Mm -hmm. It's all subjective, of course. Because he also does great, he knows great, but he's not afraid of not so great. Hmm. And he will take on just about any project, any task, and make it work and have fun doing it 
and learn from it and spread that that sort of feeling everywhere. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and all of this, I mean, you know, we all kind of do great things and then we do almost great things and then we do pretty good things. You know, right, that's, right. that's life. That's the way we are. Yeah. But especially if you're someone like Stuart Copeland and you will take on that task, what is that mission? Yes, let's do it. We can do it. Don't worry about what that critic says. Don't worry about what somebody else says. Do it, love it, enjoy it, and mm-hmm. make the most of it. And that's the thing that I have really taken away from Stuart Copeland in the last 10 years is do not be afraid. Do it. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that's a good lesson for, for just you know the, the average working drummer who obviously is not going to go compose a symphony – but right. you know, just be be open to uh, opportunities that you might not think are in right. your wheelhouse. Like if somebody exactly. says, "I want you to try this," uh, exactly, give it a, give it a shot. That's what Stuart's all about. You know, like when he got his first composing gig um, uh, for Rumblefish with Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Francis Ford Coppola listened to his first music. Said, yes, this is, this is great, but I think we need some strings here. And Stuart's like. Uh, Okay, I'll get you some strings. <laughs> right. You know, and he had never done that before. But hey, man, just jump in there and do it, and yeah. you will come out better. You might take a few hits and knocks and bruises, but hey, that just makes you stronger and smarter. Yeah. You know, for the next thing. Yeah. And and that's just a great life lesson. Period. You know. What was the name of the film you did oh, with this project? Then we made after it was all done. I had some pals of mine because um, I've, I've done a lot of uh, film score work and and uh, production of film score uh, music, and um, so I know cameramen and editors and that sort of thing. So I called them up. And I said, "Hey, this we're doing this thing with Stuart Copeland. The Dallas Symphony is going to play it, and I don't have any money, but if you want to come shoot it, that'd be great." So I had you know three of my cameraman buddies show up, and they shot the whole three year process of meetings, rehearsals recording sessions and the performance itself so at the end of all of that i had all this footage but i had no money and then um i came to know what kickstarter was Mm -hmm. and we did a kickstarter campaign i called up Stuart and i said hey what do you think about this and a lot of people think well Stuart's got plenty of money why didn't he just pay for it but that wouldn't be right because it was about Stuart and us, and mm-hmm. then it would become a vanity project. Right. It had to have an oversight. It had to have a feeling like other people are involved and overseeing this also, so that it has some you know clear subjectivity to it and and fairness. About. So Stuart said, "Yeah, that's great. See if you can raise that money on Kickstarter, and I'll help. You know, I'll promote it." And he did, and we raised ninety five thousand dollars in one month. Wow. And then we could finish the film, and we got it edited, we got it cleaned up, got it into some film festivals, and then uh, made a deal with a distributor out of New York, Kino Lorber, a great film company. And so now it's on Amazon Prime, and it's called uh, Dare to Drum. Cool. Dare to Drum. And, uh, of course, you can get it, you know, Amazon or iTunes or any of that in any form you want it or download it. But, you know, the easiest, most direct way most people are Amazon Prime members is just go there and and search Dare to Drum and it'll pop up. Cool. And uh, so it's the documentary, 90 minute documentary about the making of the work and working with Stuart. And he's hilarious in it. And uh, uh, and then the 30 minute concert with the Dallas Symphony itself. So Awesome. That was it. Cool, man. Uh, well, it was it was great talking to you, man. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Um, 
uh, this is I, I love this whole concept of working drummer because that's what we do. Yeah. You know, we work and we we pull it together however we can find it. And as we all know, you know, we're the leaders of every band. You know? <laughs> no yeah. band is successful without that drummer doing their job. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 we're working all the time. Yeah. And it's it's so it's it's perfect. I love the whole concept. And my hats off to you and your partner and. Please keep up the good work. Thank you so much, man. All right. Great, man. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Great guy, right? I feel like I need to get a lesson and or a beer with him next time I'm in Dallas. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks again to John for taking the time. The BBC documentary he referred to that Stuart Copeland was involved in is actually part of a three-part series. Stuart hosts the history of the drum set. Tina Weymouth from Talking Heads hosts the history of the bass. And Lenny Kay from R.E.M. hosts the history of the guitar. Uh, I'm about halfway through the bass documentary. It's super cool. The drum documentary was great. I I highly recommend it. We put links to those on the episode page for this episode, so definitely check those out. Once again, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Give us a like and follow on YouTube. Give us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. And, of course, keep in touch with us if you've got something to relate. Hope you join us next week for Matt Krause's interview. As always, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.